let you guys know how we're responding because I was the person who came up with the January 6th idea with Congressman Gosar, Congressman Mo Brooks, and then Congressman Andy Biggs. We four schemed up of putting maximum pressure on Congress while they were voting so that who we couldn't lobby, we could change the hearts and the minds of Republicans who were in that body hearing our loud war from outside. So I'm going to tell you this. This is my commitment to you. Any hotel that shuts down, me and my team at StopTheSteal.us will find rooms for those people. Episode 17, Hurry Up and Wait. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to the events of January 6, 2021 in Washington, D.C. I'm Scott Kuhn. Uh, that, of course, was Ali Alexander in a live stream that he deleted uh, recorded in the weeks leading up to the January 6th Capitol insurrection. In this episode, we'll catch up on some of the developments in the investigations and coverage of the insurrection in the last couple of weeks, which have been eventful. The House voted to find Steve Bannon in criminal contempt. Receiving less coverage is the fact that the depositions for Mark Meadows, Cash Patel, and Dan Scavino have all been pushed back. Though the committee says they are cooperating or engaged with the committee, we still don't know when their depositions will actually happen. In addition to these depositions, there are also about 10 more deposition deadlines this week and next week, including people who are absolutely central to the activities that led up to the January 6th insurrection. Finally, there's an article uh, by Rolling Stone reporter Hunter Walker that claims that at least five Trump officials are cooperating with the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attacks. So, taken all together, just a few months before the anniversary of the January 6th attack, we're seeing just how long it takes the Department of Justice and Congress to actually do anything. You might think that, given that this was an attack on Congress itself, action would be swift and decisive. But congressional actions... uh, in this case, just don't seem to be any more rapid than what it is for a whole host of other issues, right? Congress is is not known for having this kind of, you know, um, really rapid reaction response capability, whether it comes to something like this, even an attack directly on it, uh, or, you know, just regular housework, like putting out a budget every year. So that's that's not how, how things go. And I think we're all primed, you know, by courtroom dramas and the media to expect some kind of decisive Matlock moment where there's this final bit of evidence that's just devastating. But anyone who thinks that that's how Congress or the Department of Justice works today hasn't studied Congress or the Department of Justice. So... There are some people who are absolutely correctly alarmed by the prospect of Trumpist political violence. And we we see that, you know, this impulse that every new bit of data is going to be the last and and the most telling, Um, especially when we have a couple of weeks where everything seems to happen at once. Right. So we are we're hurrying up and waiting, which is the title of this episode. Uh, A lot of things are happening very rapidly right now. And yet, when it comes to waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for people who are uh, 
central to the events of January 6th to actually have consequences, that's going to be a long wait. That is going to be a long slog. So I think it's worth looking at the history of congressional investigations to understand that, you know, it's, it's not going to be rapid. Um, if you look at, you know, even the, the 9-11 investigation, look at the financial crisis inquiry, that took a long time. And in the end, right, what happened? We wound up invading Iraq wrongly at the behest of, you know, our friends, Saudi Arabia, who are the people who are more directly linked to the 9-11 uh, hijackers. Uh, we wind up, you know, in the financial crisis uh, inquiry report, coming up with two dueling reports months later, uh, and one of which is, is basically a cover-up. Uh, the other which is, you know, what, nearly 800 pages long and nobody reads the thing. And um, you wind up with having this, you know, narrative that the, somehow the financial crisis was caused by poor people who bought homes they couldn't afford, when in fact a lot of the evidence shows that the houses that had uh, entered into these, these problems, uh, you know, um, it was a much bigger issue that people were buying and flipping houses and uh, there was a speculative run-up in the market, as well as the whole issue that we had with the securitization of, um, of loans that was done by Wall Street, right? And in the end, you have uh, Wall Street bankers, you have the entire real estate industry uh, from the lenders, you know, uh, all the way, you know, even to, to real estate agents and, you know, there, everyone was complicit in this and as a consequence, no one winds up going to jail. You have a report, takes a long time, and no one goes to jail. Sadly, you know, I mean, and I would love to be wrong. That's what I, we've been primed to expect on this, you know. But nonetheless, we're still at the part where we haven't even gotten the report. And so, you know, as we're seeing with, with Steve Bannon, you know, even enforcing a subpoena isn't a speedy manner. And uh, as I'm talking right now, Steve Bannon, you know, uh, it's been referred to the, the Justice Department, um, but, you know, we don't know if the Marshal Service is going to be knocking on uh, good old uh, Stevie's door anytime soon. So I think for those of us who are, uh, you know, we see this existential threat posed to electoral democracy in America by Trumpist extremism as the most political, you know, the most urgent political problem of our day, it's worth asking what we are going to do about it, right? If at the end of the day, this process, you know, winds up with have a whole bunch of little foot soldiers going to prison, you know, uh, maybe a few people arrested for some financial shenanigans, but no real consequences to any of the people who are central to the planning uh, and execution of the January 6th attack. And finally, I'll examine the January 6th insurrection uh, in light of political science theories of political culture in the United States, which is um, you know, not as relevant to some of these uh, current developments, as I would hope, but nonetheless, uh, is, I think, a, a little bit of a, a useful, if provisional, and tentative insight. Um, I'll summarize the, these theories and relate them to my own analysis of the defendants in the capital insurrection cases. Um, basically, what are these political culture theories? Well, their idea is that there are these distinct cultures uh, in American politics that go all the way back to the founding and not before. Uh, they're related to waves of immigration. Uh, mainly from the United Kingdom. And so I was able to uh, go through and tediously uh, look, examine uh, 631 surnames 
from each of the capital defendants. And the results weren't what I expected, right? I was actually looking to tie into a different body of literature that says that uh, one of the things that immigrants do, Im white immigrants particularly, when they arrive in the United States is they become assimilated to the culture of uh, white supremacy. And this ideology is one of the signs that you've arrived as an American, right? That you've adopted uh, this racist ideology. And so I was expecting, actually, um, lots of surnames that would be uh, indicative of people who, you know, were largely European immigrants who had come to the United States in, in you know, last 50 years or so. And instead, it was exactly the opposite. What I found was exactly the opposite. And that itself, of course, again, that's, you know, most political scientists or other social scientists in general don't talk about it, right? They don't talk about, you know, uh, they, they don't want to be accused of the post hoc uh, changes to, to their theory. You know, if you don't find what you, what you initially expect to find, you, you're never going to, uh, you know, talk about that. You pretend that you your theory predicted what you found all along. I'm being cynical. No, no, none of the leading academic journals actually accept work that, that's like that, right? That's, you know, that would be bad. It happens at the phase of the research that, uh, you know, people don't, don't necessarily talk about. But uh, these defendants, of course, were overwhelmingly white, male, and from the eastern United States, particularly the Northeast, um, which, again, was something I talked about in an earlier episode. Didn't expect that, right? Trump's most popular in the South. Would have expected more people to come to the South, you know. Uh, the, the distance from Rochester, New York, and Raleigh, North Carolina. Raleigh, North Carolina is closer uh, to D.C. And, and yet, what we found is that, you know, it was uh, New York. It was upstate New York. It was um, Pennsylvania. It was Ohio. Uh, and that's that's very different. So that's part of why this polit these political culture theories are interesting. Um, because that is Yankeedom. That is uh, old line uh, settlers coming to the United States from uh, mainly, predominantly, uh, the United Kingdom uh, and a lesser extent, Germany. So I'll talk about this and the, the significance of this in, in the last bit of the podcast. Uh, but my top line finding is that 52.77% of the defendants have surnames that originate in the UK, i.e. England, Scotland, and Wales. Broke out Ireland not only because they're you know more identifiable, uh, but just also for historical reasons, they, they had a, a little bit of a later wave of immigration. Nonetheless, that's very different from the population as a whole. Uh, even if you just look at the, sorry, the Caucasoid part of the population, uh, this ethnic category, Americans of British descent, is oftentimes indivisible, in part because it's treated as the default category. But it, it looms large in this literature on political culture in the United States. And uh, you know, it really relates to a different uh, thing, but you know, what I find is actually consistent with um, the you know, findings of uh, Robert Pape, uh, Professor Robert Pape of uh, Chicago, uh, who uses a empirical work to demonstrate, again, using county level data, that uh, fear of demographic change appears to be an important motivator for many uh, far-right extremists in the United States today. And interestingly, by the way, Pape is actually a good example of someone who does exactly what I was just talking about. He expected something else, and he's upfront about that and is to be saluted. Uh, he expected it was economic anxiety, right? And, of course, he caught a lot of heck for that. Um, but, you know, it's not economic anxiety. Uh, this is a, a demographic group that, you know, 
it's right there in the idea of the great replacement that uh, fears they are being displaced. Nonetheless, there are, are millions and millions and millions of Americans of uh, particularly uh, British descent who see themselves in some level, uh, even if they're not familiar with their own genealogies, um, you know, as quote, the, the real Americans, right? Culture is something that is, you know, I don't want to say real, but uh, it's passed down from generation to generation and it has uh, telling influences on our politics and on our political outlooks that, you know, we can't always tell. All right, before we do any of that, before we look at the, the latest developments and my own uh, little effort and empirical investigation into the ethnic origins of the people who stormed the Capitol, let's review the recent developments in the Capitol insurrection investigation as a whole. First, give the numbers uh, according to Sedition Tracker. We have had 650 individuals charged, which is an increase of 13 since the last episode, and still on a pace of about five to seven arrests a week. So um, I think uh, a number of sedition trackers, you know, from the very beginning talked about, uh, you know, something like 2,000, 2,500 people uh, in the Capitol. Uh, my own sort of back of the envelope calculation was that if you had, uh, you know, 800, 900 officers, how many people uh, would it take to overwhelm that many, right? You know, so at least double um, when you're looking at the, the uh, assault on, on officers. So, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people are still at large, and we don't know how many have been identified. Um, but they're coming in, I think, at the, the what's determining here is the pace at which the AUSAs can actually process uh, all, all of these documents. We've had 318 indictments, uh, which is an increase of three since the last episode. Three deceased, no change there. One dismissal, um, that was early on uh, and, you know, not really relevant. 113 convictions, which is an increase of 16 since the last episode. And these are mainly misdemeanors. Um, and finally, 20 sentencings, which is an increase of seven since our last episode. So just take a, a moment to talk about some of the, the folks uh, who are included in, uh, you know, that phase of, of the show, right? People who are, are being charged and people who are being uh, sentenced. One of the sentences uh, that was handed down was for Troy Smocks of Dallas, Texas, who was sentenced to 14 months in prison and three years of probation for the electronic interstate communication threats. Mr. Smocks wasn't even at the Capitol, and he winds up getting a stiffer sentence than many of the defendants who were there and sentenced on the parading charges, right? That misdemeanor charge you see time and time again, four misdemeanor charges, person winds up pleading to one, and we're seeing those, you know, all the time. All the sentences are now being handed down for these low-level misdemeanor parading defendants. Troy Smocks isn't one of those. Troy Smocks was in his hotel room in Dallas, uh, and, you know, uh, putting stuff out on social media that winds up, you know, I mean, they're, they're very specific threats of violence. Um, one difference, of course, between him and many of these misdemeanor defendants is that he has a long criminal history. And another is that he's black. So, of course, you know, worth mentioning that his judge, Judge Chan Tanya Chutkin, uh, who's appointed by President Obama in 2014, is also black. So, 
Um, nonetheless, Smox you know, made a, a, a point of pointing out this disparity between his sentence, uh, he wasn't even there, right, and the sentences of the people uh, who were actually there. To be honest with you, I'm not even sure why he is counted as uh, a January 6th uh, defendant. Um, you know, my personal hope is that Judge Chutkin uh, takes this opportunity to demonstrate that the fairness and impartiality of the system, uh, which he's such an important part, by playing catch up a little bit here, right? So, you know, um, she's sentencing Smocks to 14 months in prison. Uh, maybe she can award some more time to some of the defendants who actually took part in the insurrection itself. Um, and again, sentencing gu guidelines are not so much, be, you know, within the control. She actually could have given him a lot more time, uh, given his criminal background. And that all goes into a complicated formula. So a lot of folks are saying, well, you know, there you go, right? But it is more complicated than that. Now we cannot. We can certainly talk about people who, you know, uh, we are. We have a system that's very good at weeding people out, right? So you know, how many of those criminal defendants are people who've got second and third and fourth chances from law enforcement who decided to not pursue their cases uh, further, whereas uh, Mr. Smocks has never gotten that benefit. We've also seen some actual prison time for misdemeanor defendants, Donna Bissy. Edward Hemingway, Robert Bauer, and Robert Reeder were all sentenced to serve some time. And Reeder uh, getting the most time at 90 days in prison. So that is, in my, my view, a positive thing, right? I think the judges are, uh, you know, perhaps more alert to the fact that there's these, this is a serious event and perhaps there needs to be uh, actual consequences. Um, my own personal argument is that there is an ongoing danger to the community. There's a danger to democracy itself. This is not simply uh, a, an ordinary case of parading. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, if you look at back at the legislative history of the, quote, parading charge, uh, that was amended in 1967, October, uh, just the day before the largest Vietnam War protest to that date, and it was specifically targeted at nonviolent political demonstrators. It was a way to criminalize the behavior of nonviolent political demonstrators. But this was not a nonviolent demonstration. And yet this law is being applied uh, to these demonstrators who stormed the Capitol. Um, you know, and you, you can look, I mean, <laughs> I don't, you know, whether or not you necessarily approve, this is a good application of the law, but I'm not sure that, uh, you know, this law that was designed expressly for nonviolent uh, offenders, not or well, really people who are nonviolent and, and not you know engaged in acts of civil disobedience, right? I mean, this is specifically targeting civil rights activists and uh, Vietnam War activists, and was you know criminalizing what could be First Amendment protected uh, behavior, uh, and yet here it is. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about violent insurrectionists, even if these individuals don't have those kinds of charges against them uh, by the fact that they, you know, they piggybacked onto uh, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the, the violent thugs like, uh, you know, who sympathize with them and were part of that um, by going into the Capitol, right? And bears reiterating the vast majority of the people in the crowd at the Ellipse who marched to the Capitol that day, had the, they were smart enough not to do that, right? So, you know, they, they stood and watched, which is a kind of a tacit approval in my mind, but nonetheless, 
you know, uh, most people didn't assault the, the officers. Most people didn't go into the Capitol. And we need to show that uh, that kind of behavior is not acceptable, especially when there's an ongoing danger to democracy that is posed by the fact that the same liars are out there telling the same lies. And I wish that the judges would, would take that into account. The situation that we face right now is, is this is not a one-time thing, right? Uh, you have the actors who took part in this who have been ongoing for years. Stuart Rhodes was taking part in occupations in the Pacific Northwest, you know, uh, and, and this is, this is a continuum. This isn't a one-time thing. And they keep saying this is a one-time thing, not likely to be re repeated, but you know, Charlottesville, this is not a one-time thing. We've had a long war against violent right-wing extremism since at least the Murrah bombing in 1995. Uh, and of course, in the figure of Merrick Garland, we have continuity with that, right? And there have been suggestions that, uh, Attorney General Garland is not serious in that, and I would point you to the date of June 11th, 2001, of course, when Timothy McVeigh was executed in Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, by lethal injection. So, yes, it's, it's opaque. Yes, we can't see what the DOJ is doing. Nonetheless, I still have trust that Merrick Garland is looking into it. All right. An another arrest was made in the case of Michael Riley, a Capitol Police officer, who's charged with obstruction of justice for alerting an insurrectionist that he should take down all social media point posts that incriminated him, that is to say, uh, the insurrectionist. That defendant, who's named as person one in Riley's indictment, had been arrested on January 19th after communicating with Riley. And, and my sources, I'm, I'm just going right uh, to Riley's indictment. Riley then deletes all of his messages on January 20th, his, his message exchange that he had with this defendant. And this must have been known to the government for, for some time, right? They would have had uh, the evidence from one party to the conversation. Um, Riley wasn't one of the officers who was un undergoing the OPR, the Office of Professional Responsibility Investigation. So nonetheless, I, I you know, I take this as a, as a positive sign because... Um, you know, yes, it's concerning on the one hand that Riley was apparently allowed to stay on duty for nine months after the government knew that he sympathized with his insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol. On the other hand, this is the first example that we have of consequences, right, for officers who, you know, really appear to have some, uh, you know, actual complicity. He's helping to obstruct justice by talking, you know, to this insurrectionist, and that is why he's getting this obstruction of justice charge. That's why he's getting, uh, you know, the, perhaps anyway, you know, a serious federal felony. Uh, we'll see if the, the Department of Justice actually goes through with that. All right, another notable arrest was that of uh, Kim Sorgente. I uh, hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Sorgente was arrested on three charges, including a felony assault on a federal officer and was one of the participants in the melee at the tunnel on the lower west terrace of the Capitol. He was identified by someone who is, I guess what we are now calling a citizen sleuth in early February. And this is another case where there's evidence in the statement of facts that matches up exactly with what the government was given by citizen sleuths, sometimes word for word. 
So he's someone who's well-known to people who study far-right extremism in California, and so was apparently identified by, by multiple sleuths. Um, and I, I don't ever, you know, feel comfortable doing this. It's hard to, I would like to give credit for identifications, but absent, without asking people, I'm not, not going to do that. And I'm very leery of actually accidentally uh, doxing people. You know, I've, I've had threats against me uh, in, for different reasons uh, when dealing with far-right extremists. I wouldn't expose someone to that because we are dealing with actual terrorists. So... Uh, you know, multiple people involved in this crowdsourced effort working on the same defendant. If you were involved, if you're listening, I uh, just want to thank you for fighting fascism in America today. The Sorgente case is one of those cases that's a bit more complicated, and there are any number of things that stick out. Now, for one thing, his identity was made known to authorities early last spring, and yet he's only just been arrested. And yet for months, his Bolo photos, AFO... 263 A and B have been circulating, and the FBI has sent out tweets saying, do you know this person for months, when they've all known all along who he is. Um, as I mentioned in one of the very early episodes, there's good reason for this. If someone is known, but you don't want to make an arrest immediately, it makes sense for the government to not, not to tip their handle. Also, uh, Sorgenti is also in trouble with the law for an assault in California in December of last year. Now, you might think that someone like that might turn down the volume a little bit, lay low, but he continued to be active in extremist political events, both on the 6th and, and afterwards. He was present at a pivotal moment, the death of Roseanne Boyland at the Lower West Terrace Tunnel. And in fact, he either stumbled over or trampled on her body, not helping her in a moment of extreme distress. And indeed, the mob at that point, of which Sorgente was a part, was a key reason cited in government documents as to why police were not able to render aid to Boyland in anything like a timely manner, and they were actually desperate to do that. The medical examiner ruled Boylan's death a drug overdose, but I've always expected that more might come of this. And yet here we have a case where someone might have been charged uh, in playing some kind of role but isn't. And in fact, it's remarkable that Sorgente only faces three charges. He was in the thick of it, fighting on the plaza, fighting at the tunnel, and many other similar defendants who are similarly situated, doing similar things for a similar amount of time. They're getting five, six, seven, or eight, or nine charges, and he has only three, only one of which is a felony. There are potential charges that appear to have been overlooked in his case. He's only running, you know, facing three charges, but somehow his statement of facts runs to 27 pages, one of the longer statements of facts. Plus, he's, he's also a known associate of many people who are active in far-right extremism in Southern California, and he presumably traveled to the Capitol with someone. So you have someone, for once, who might actually have information of interest to the government who's also facing state charges, and he's facing federal charges, and there's this long delay between his identification and his arrest, and he appears to have been undercharged. So, you know, the, the logic behind not arresting someone or not making it known that the government knows their identity uh, makes sense if they're not trying to tip their hand 
so that person might become a fugitive or elude arrest. Also makes sense if they're cooperating, right? Because you can continue to have this person, you know, uh, give you information and go to other events and report on other activities uh, by other extremists with whom they are involved. But, you know, you can draw your own conclusions. Um, I'd say that if I was a fascist in Southern California that did any crimes or conspired to do crimes with Tim Sorgente, uh, I'd be very concerned about it. In completely unrelated news, Nick Fuentes is still claiming that he is on a no-fly list. All right, moving on to some of the subpoenas. Uh, talk about Bannon, Meadows, Patel, and Scavino. In our last episode, I noted that the deadline for former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, former Deputy White House Chief of Staff for Communications Daniel Scavino, former Defense Department official Cash Patel, and former Trump advisor Steve Bannon had all come and gone. Then there was some controversy over the question of whether Bannon would be referred for criminal contempt, given that he had given notice that he wasn't testifying. On October 19th, the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack moved to recommend criminal contempt charges be brought before the whole House, which they were on October 21st, and passed the House by a vote of 229 to 202, with nine Republicans siding with the majority. The referral was then sent to the D.C. U.S. Attorney that very same day by courier. So the question is whether the Justice Department is actually going to prosecute Bannon. And I think they will, unless Bannon suddenly decides it's in his interest to comply. I think it's been 13 days now. Um, but, you know, Merrick Garland gave testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee on October 27th. Uh, but he was not asked and did not say whether the Department of Justice would move to arrest Bannon. Now, for those of us who are following this and want the interest of justice to be served, this is infuriating. But the role of the Attorney General is to be impartial and disinterested. Garland probably feels it would be inappropriate for him to say anything about this at this point. All the other signs point to the support that the DOJ has for vigorous investigation and prosecution of the insurrection. There aren't a lot of tea leaves to read, but what there is tends to support the hypothesis that Garland is going to uphold the criminal referral. Among other things, Garland, responding to a question by Sheldon Whitehouse, said that the insurrection, quote, would not, sorry, the investigation of the insurrection, quote, would not be constrained in any way, i.e. only limited to people actually at the insurrection. In a follow-up, White House asked if the Department of Justice would, quote, follow the money. And Garland said, quote, it's fair to say that all investigative techniques of which you are familiar, and some of which you may not be familiar with because they post-date your time, that is, say, uh, White House's time as prosecutor, they are all being pursued in this manner, end quote. So I think we're all very used to Bill Barr, and we may not understand why Garland is being so cryptic here, but, you know, I think it's a positive sign. I mean, he is uh, in charge of the investigation, right? But as the Attorney General, it, it would be inappropriate for him to really dig down deep and, you know, uh, apply pressure to the uh, U.S. Attorney, Assistant U.S. Attorneys in this matter. And so I do think he's taking it very seriously. 
but he also can't say anything that might be taken as prejudicial because the investigation is at a remove from him. He is their boss. He's the boss of the U.S. attorney, but he also has to not interfere in any way. You know, I, I personally would like him to come out and, you know, uh, deliver a barn burner of a speech. That's just not in his character. So, you know, I don't find it terribly concerning. Um, many people have taken this, you know, as a sign that, well, he's not actually doing anything or the Department of Justice isn't on top of it. Uh, you know, I, I think that we will eventually see Steve Bannon in Marshall's custody. And uh, I think we will also see uh, charges for the organizations that funded January 6th. And this is another interesting detail, right? When we're talking about following the money, when Garland is talking about using these investigative techniques, that's what he's talking about. And many of the groups involved were things like 503C3s. That, that comes from a, a section of the tax code. And uh, whatever activities that a 503C3 is in, permitted to engage in, overthrowing the United States government isn't one of them. I don't think that that's something that they're going to let slide. I think important reason why this process is so frustrating for so many people is that it's completely opaque. Uh, we know, you know, things are, are happening rapidly, but we, we don't necessarily know that they are. And so, you know, it appears like nothing is happening, but, you know, some things could be happening and, and we don't know about it. Um, now, you know, I, I would fault some certain decisions have been made along the way. The House wasted a good deal of time trying to negotiate a genuinely bipartisan select committee, and, and now they're playing catch-up. Um, we know the work's ongoing, but we don't know what exactly that work consists of. And so they're hurrying up, and we're waiting, which I know is a bit of a strange use of the phrase, right? But that's how the government works, or, or doesn't work, or appears to not work at times. Uh, there's all these depositions and closed-door sessions, and we don't hear anything, except for when subpoenas are issued, and criminal referrals are made, or at least, you know, when subpoenas are actually issued. Um, on October 26th, the Washington Post reported that the House Select Committee would subpoena John Eastman, the architect of the effort to destroy electoral democracy in America. So now we get to go through the whole process again, and it would be remarkable if Eastman attempted to claim executive privilege, because he has appeared publicly to discuss this memo on Steve Bannon's podcast of all venues. That's remarkable hubris. If you're trying to claim that you didn't take part in a coup attempt, one might expect that the very last person that you would be interested in talking to publicly would be Steve Bannon. Um, now, especially, you know, because Steve Bannon, after all, is the only person who has a criminal complaint referred by Congress to the Justice Department. Nonetheless, the committee has said that Eastman is engaged with the committee, whatever that means, and that uh, he's being given the opportunity to cooperate even absent a subpoena. So we have Patel, Scavino, and Meadows who are all engaged with the committee despite missing their deposition deadlines, and we have Bannon flagrantly flouting a subpoena, and the committee is nonetheless, you know, putting out the possibility of a trial balloon that Eastman is going to engage voluntarily as well. Now, meanwhile, there's no real news re regarding depositions. Um, they all seem to have been postponed. The dates come and go. 
The committee issues a statement to the effect that the date's been postponed, and that's it. That's all we get to hear on the subject. There's no further explanation. Um, and so people talk about uh, Attorney General Garland, but I think that the committee could probably do a better job in explaining all of these postponements of people who are supposedly engaged and cooperating with the committee. Now, the one upside of all this is that Eastman has said that he doesn't recall who asked him to write the memo. Uh, only that it was someone from the Trump campaign. It would be very difficult for him to try to claim attorney-client privilege under these kinds of circumstances. Uh, if you have a client, presumably someone's written a check, right? Presumably you have spoken with someone. And to, to say that you, you don't recall either implies that you are not capable of acting as an attorney, uh, or you're lying. So he, you know, that should be an interesting thing for the committee to, to try to pursue. Um, but, you know, if someone asks you to write a memo to overthrow the results of a presidential election, uh, you know, why would you write it unless you knew who that person was? If you don't know who it is, how do you know that they're actually from the Trump campaign? And uh, was he paid a fee? Or was he promised a fee? And, of course, you know, the matter of the fee also gives us another paper trail to follow, right? Um, in unrelated news, it's been revealed that Janine Pirro, uh, who is on Fox News, right? A Judge Janine, a Fox News personality, um, paid for the command center at the Willard Hotel and uh, other places. So, you know, did she pay Eastman's fee? Who did? Uh, we don't know that, but... You know, it'll certainly be interesting to get Eastman's testimony on that. Uh, for which, again, you can't claim attorney-client privilege. Um, you know, there's a crime fraud rule. Uh, and, you know, he's all, it just, uh, it's hard for you to say that it's privilege when you've talked about on Steve Bannon's podcast. And it's hard to say that it's privilege when, again, you're not even sure, right? There's just some unidentified person. Uh, in the campaign. So as the kids would say, that that is very much sus. Now, back to Eastman for a moment. Uh, he worked as a law professor at Chapman uh, before moving into administration for a few years. And then he was also, uh, apparently, I don't know if he, he moved into emeritus status or if he was actually, sorry, I think he was actually a dean, but also went back to the classroom for a while. And so just for fun, I looked up his ratings on Rate My Professor. Um, if you were to look me up, uh, you'd find that 78% of my former students would take a course with me again, which is not great. could be higher, uh, but, you know, I'm easy, whatever. John Eastman, 25%. 25% of his students right, say that they would take his course again. And so here's just a kind of a, a sample of some of his reviews. Quote, bizarre teaching style seems out of it. Hmm, makes sense. You can't recall. Maybe that's true. Does not hide his politics, but firmly feels he has a grasp on sand. He has a grasp on quicksand, weaving his own beliefs where they do not belong. Another one, quote, skip this class, horrible professor, stuck in the past. Constantly tries to sound more clever than he is, extremely pretentious, borderline narcissistic. Very outdated views on law, doesn't realize this isn't the 1920s anymore. There's almost 100 more years of new court cases, rulings, and progress, but it's all ignored. Another one, this class will not prepare you for the bar. If you want to talk philosophy, 
This is all you will get in this class. Avoid this class at all costs, exclamation point. Uh, another one, simple comment, confused. So, you know, after reading his reviews, I, I actually almost kind of believe that he might not recall uh, who asked him to write the memo. Um, he is, he's apparently only 61. I, and if you'd asked me, I, I would have put him somewhere in his mid-70s. Uh, but he's, you know, just a really old 61. And his legal theory uh, for how to overturn the election was simply insane. Uh, if the vice president actually had the power that Eastman claims the vice president has, alternate slates of electors would routinely be appointed by state legislatures, and elections would regularly be decided in Congress. So his work, if nothing else, did reveal the need to reform the Electoral Count Act to repeat a, you know, avoid the repeat attempt to overturn uh, presidential elections and undermine electoral democracy in the, in the U.S., um, but, you know, at any rate, his testimony on this question should be interesting. And, you know, hopefully that the committee actually means something when they say that he's engaged with them. Now, he's claimed that the memo itself was a crazy strategy, which really raises a question why he would draft it for his client in the first place. As a, uh, an attorney, your job is to not draft crazy strategies, right? If you bill yourself as some kind of constitutional scholar, you're not supposed to be drafting crazy strategies. You're supposed to be uh, addressing constitutional law issues. So, again, if subpoenaed, uh, it's going to be just another deadline. And here are the deadlines that we've had so far for depositions for the January 6th committee. Cash Patel, October 14th, postponed. Mark Meadows, October 15th, postponed. Dan Scavino, October 15th, postponed. Megan Powers, October 21st, uh, postponed, but we do have a note saying that there's been document compliance. Hannah Stone, October 22nd, document compliance again there. Uh, Lyndon Brentnall, October 27th, uh, 22nd. Also, uh, there's been document compliance. Justin Caporale, October 25th, he's again allegedly engaged with the committee. Tim Unas, October 25th, engaged with the committee. Kath Caroline Wren, October 26th, engage with the committee. Maggie Mulvaney, October 26th, engage with the committee. Um, Cindy Chafian, October 28th. Andy, Amy Kramer, October 29th. Kylie Kramer, October 29th. Ali Alexander, October 29th. Jeff Clark, October 29th. And Katarina Pearson, uh, November 3rd. So unless the, the committee is actually operating in secret, it would seem that all these depositions are being postponed. They've given notice that some of them have been postponed. I remember all the ones last Friday, they put up uh, something saying that they, they were being postponed. Uh, and presumably every time they're postponing it, it pushes back the other depositions. And uh, you know these dates that have been put forward by the committee have been absolutely meaningless to date. And there've been no real consequences. So um, it could be that they're waiting uh, for the results of the Trump claims of executive privilege in this regard. Um, but I also think that this, this kind of slowness is a time-honored tradition when it comes to Washington investigations of serious crimes. We can look at the 9-11 Commission report as an example of this. The commission wasn't convened until 20 months after 9-11 and didn't issue a report until July of 2004, fully 34 months after the 9-11 attacks and over a year after the United States invaded the Republic of Iraq 
on the basis of phony claims about weapons of mass destruction. Or you can consider the case of the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission report. That commission wasn't convened until 15 months after the crash of 2008, and the report wasn't published for 27 months until after the, the financial crisis began. So if you take the average of those two, that's 30 months, which means we can finally expect to hear back from the committee sometime in the summer of 2023. Um, of course, I, you know, give Congress a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, give the House a little bit of benefit, and note that uh, the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack was formed more quickly than either the 9-11 Commission or the Financial uh, Crisis Inquiry Commission. And it was formed on in Jan July 1st, 2021, a mere six months after the January 6th attack. So that's practically light speed in Congress time. So if we're looking at the same timetable, the average of the, the amount, amount of time from being first convened to actually issuing a report uh, is 13 months uh, in those two cases. And that's, I know, not a big sample size, but in the universe of giant bad things that have happened that Congress has investigated, uh, there, there aren't that many things that are actually comparable to this. So, but if we think about 13 months, that would mean that the timetable would be uh, the committee issuing a report in August of 2022. In the meantime, Facebook has been going through some things. And if you've looked at any of the charging documents for these January 6th defendants, you'll know what a prominent role Facebook played in both radicalization of these defendants and also the organization, the various Facebook groups uh, that were used. And of course, um, the fact that it was basically a platform that January 6th insurrectionists used to brag about their activities during the insurrection. And now Facebook itself faces new questions with the release of what the media are calling the Facebook Papers, uh, which were released to a group of media outlets by whistleblower Francis Haugen. Now, you might argue that uh, the January 6th committee has had a, a lack of transparency, particularly with regard to these deposition dates that have been blown by. And you might look at, you know, uh, the question of whether or not 13, 14, 15, 16 days is enough time to actually uh, have the Justice Department enforce subpoenas against, you know, someone like Steve Bennett, right? I mean, who faces criminal contempt charges, but apparently nothing else, right? They, you know, the uh, Marshal Service has yet to knock on his door. And yet, uh, it would seem that one consequence of the, this leak uh, that targeted Facebook is that on October 24th, Chairman Benny Thompson announced on Face the Nation that the committee had, quote, identified Facebook as important to our investigation. We are in the process of negotiating with Facebook and those other platforms to get certain information. But it's clear that the January 6th organization used them as an organizing tool. At this point, Facebook is working with us to provide the information that the committee has requested, end quote. That's probably not going to give information that will link directly to, let's say, Donald Trump, but it's still good news.
if you spend any time, you know, again, you've seen how pivotal Facebook was. And it's probably the case that there are other people who are linked to various different groups who have communicated with defendants who have already been identified. And so it's good to know that the committee and perhaps even the FBI has that information. So if Facebook were, were to actually help the committee actually go through this, the data that it has on the known defendants and look at other members of Facebook groups they're in, let's say, uh, that might be useful. And so, you know, most of the attention uh, regarding Thompson's face and nation appearance focused on that aspect of it. But I would like to direct you to another part of it, which to me seems uh, at least equally significant. You said this week you want to know who financed the march, who chartered the buses, who chartered the airplanes that day. Do you have any of the questions regarding the finances yet? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, we have uh, one of the teams on the committee uh, whose sole purpose is to look at the financing uh, of January 6th. Uh, the people who uh, spent money, uh, whether it's their money or other folks' money, it really doesn't matter, but we want that uh, to go to the work product of the committee. Uh, we think uh, the potential for commingling uh, restricted funds for this purpose might be there, but obviously we'll look at it. Uh, it's just interesting to note that a lot of people came to Washington uh, by bus, by plane, uh, by chartered uh, uh, vehicles. Yeah. Uh, they stayed in hotels, motels, all of that. Somebody had to pay for it. And we want to look at whether or not uh, the paying for that participation was legal and whether or not it contributed to what occurred on January 6th. When so if you're Charlie Kirk, right, uh, you got to be a little bit nervous about that. Now, we know who these groups and these organizations are. Uh, for example, Pennsylvania State Senator Doug Mastriano used campaign funds to take buses of Trumpists from Pennsylvania to the Capitol. Now, I'm a political scientist, not an attorney, but that is not an appropriate use of campaign funds. This wasn't just a rally gone bad. Similarly, uh, Women for America First is a 501c4. And as is the, the Rule of Law Defense Fund and Turning Point Action, again, Charlie Kirk's outfit that is aimed at young fascists. There's a reason why Senator Sheldon Whitehouse asked Merrick Garland about whether or not the Department of Justice is following the money. This is where the receipts are. And it's also the link between the mob itself and the people higher up the food chain. You can lie in your deposition, try to stonewall the subpoena process, but you can't change that. You're either breaking the law by not keeping records, or you're breaking the law by spending money to bring insurrectionists to Washington, D.C. to try to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. The rules regarding how you're supposed to spend your money as a 501c3 or a 501c4 aren't particularly strict, but leading a coup isn't one of those legitimate purposes. 
And I really don't think that uh, they followed the rules here. They expected to win. And so they probably just did it. So the more they look, the more I expect they'll find. And I think you'll find that it's not just longtime far-right funders such as Julie Jenkins, the public heiress, but also people personally affiliated with Trump himself. Again, Judge Jeanine Pirro, right? Funded the war rooms at the Willard and in other locations, um, apparently personally. So, uh, you know, she has more latitude to do that, but that would have to, you know, it's either is it a campaign activity or is it a coup? Either way, it's not legal because it's not a legitimate campaign activity. And of course, you're not allowed to, to fund a coup. That is like supporting terrorism. So a 501c4 is special because they're dark money groups and they don't ordinarily have to say who their money, their donors are. Um, but they're also not Steve Bannon, and they do have a legal framework to ensure accountability. So the answer that, you know, I don't recall isn't an option for them. And, you know, if their records are subpoenaed, they are subpoenaed. So once the committee gets their hands on the records for these groups, you don't know what you're going to find, but it's probably not going to be great for anyone affiliated with them. That's why it's for the in the interest of someone like a... Amy Kramer, to cooperate. It's quite possible they're going to jail otherwise. Which brings us to the Rolling Stone article, which came out on October 24th, entitled, January 6th protest organizers say they participated in dozens of planning meetings with members of Congress and White House staff. They put the lead right there in the headline. If you're a listener of this podcast, you've probably read it, but I'll give you a quick summary here. The sources are described as an organizer and a planner for the January 6th rally at the Ellipse. We don't know who they are, but we do know that they are cooperating with the January 6th committee. Also, if they're talking to the press, they would likely have had approval from the January 6th House Select Committee itself. This isn't your usual DC anonymously sourced article. These are two people who are definitely working with the committee who have inside knowledge of the events leading up to January 6th. They have legal counsel, and they're probably not going to do anything that the committee says is a bad idea. Now, the sources describe planning events associated with Stop the Steal and March for Trump all around the country in the lead-up to January 6th, and they report having spoken with members of Congress throughout this process. And this is part of what uh, has gotten their most reporting. The members of Congress that these, the, the planner and the organizer, the, these anonymous individuals, uh, have mentioned include Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, Paul Gosar of Arizona, Lauren Boebert of Colorado, Mo Brooks of Alabama, Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina, Andy Biggs of Arizona, and Louis Gohmert of Texas. So collectively, people are calling this group of representatives the Sedition Seven. Of course, you'll recognize some of these names as some of them have been mentioned before. There's overlap between this list and the list of members of the House who are alleged to have given tours of the House on January 5th at a time 
when no such tours were authorized. That's a claim that was made by Representative Mikey Sherrill of New Jersey almost immediately after the insurrection. Sherrill never named names, but attention has been directed particularly at Green, Cawthorn, and Boebert. Representative Steve Cohen of Tennessee had specifically identified Boebert, who was investigated by the Ethics Committee, along with Gosar and Brooks, for their potential involvement, an investigation that was dropped last June. Now, we don't know, of course, whether or not there were findings that were issued that may be uh, in the hands of the January 6th Committee today. There is some question as to whether or not video footage from January 6th, 5th, sorry, uh, these potential reconnaissance tours would still exist. But if true, there would still also, you know, even if that is not the case, right, there would still be visitor logs. So at any rate, the, um, the Rolling Stone article isn't actually about the reconnaissance tours, uh, a matter that one might imagine the January 6th committee itself is still looking into. But it's interesting to see so much overlap. And there's also overlap between this list and the list of members of Congress offered by Ali Alexander in a live stream as he was planning the Stop the Steal event that I played at the intro to this show. Another allegation detailed in the article by the anonymous organizer is the claim that Paul Gosar had offered a, quote, blanket pardon in an unrelated matter as an incentive to organize the rally. Quote, our impression was that it was a done deal, that he'd spoken to the president about it in the Oval. In a meeting about pardons, and our names came up. They were working on submitting the paperwork and getting members of the House Freedom Caucus to sign as a show of support, end quote. There's been some suggestion that this may have been a sign regarding the identity of the Rolling Stone source, since you can just go down the list of people who've received subpoenas and also, you know, are currently under investigation uh, for unrelated questions, right? So just correlate with that with the, the possible names of people. Um, at any rate, this would be yet another crime because a blanket pardon is definitely a thing of value being offered in exchange for taking part in a criminal activity. That's a no-no. And it ties in with the investigations of the Trump administration for potentially accepting bribes in the form of campaign contributions in exchange for pardons. All right, well, that's it for the latest events. Obviously, um, things get superseded. And one of the reasons why this podcast took me a little while to do is because I kind of kept waiting for the other shoe to drop, uh, particularly with regard to the depositions. And they kept getting postponed, uh, which should just teach me, right? I should just expect from now on that consequences uh, may not ever come, uh, or if they do, they're going to be seriously delayed. In any event, I'd like to talk a little bit now about political culture and Trumpism, your little bit of political science value added for the show. So I did a little bit of an empirical project here. Uh, what I did was to sort through uh, 639 capital defendants, uh, which was at the time the total universe of cases when I began. I didn't add new cases as new defendants were identified and arrested. 
I then categorize their surname origins. And what's the surname origin? Basically, uh, you can you know you can find for most surnames a identifiable place from which they come, right? So I was looking at uh, national origins, uh, or even in some cases, subnational origins, right? So, I mean, there's some surnames, for example, let's say a Spanish sur surname that you can track down, particularly to Catalonia. Uh, uh, there were two defendants, for example, who had surnames that are identifiably Basque. Um, and so I categorized uh, the surname origins for all this, this entire group of defendants. Now, um, 639 cases altogether, uh, but I had to exclude eight cases in total. These are basically missing data uh, because I was unable to find a, a surname origin for them. Their surnames are so peculiar and idiosyncratic that uh, it's hard to tell, or they have surnames that um, originate in different places. Like there are a few surnames that are not unique to uh, a given place, locale, or nationality. Uh, so I simply exclude those because they have multiple uh, different modes of origin, and there's only eight cases uh, out of an N of 639. That's fairly trivial. So in those cases, you know, rather than pollute your data with bad information, it's just better to exclude them. Now, of these 639 cases, uh, I was uh, initially moved to, to do this in part because I, I'd seen so many cases that seemed to come from sort of the, the periphery, or that is to say, rather late waves of particularly uh, European-American immigration to the United States. And so there's a theory that basically says that one of the ways that you've arrived in the U.S. is that you adopt the, uh, the old-stock American idea of uh, racism, of whiteness. And instead, what I found interesting was that that's not the case. As a matter of fact, that's so far from the case that, once again, it's just dramatically wrong. So out of those 631 cases, 333 of them had surnames that were uh, identifiable and track, you know, you could trace them to the United Kingdom. And of course, I'm defining the United Kingdom here as England, Scotland, Wales, hard to tell Northern Irish, Ireland surnames from uh, Irish surnames. So a lot of those folks, you know, would be probably categorized uh, as Irish if they have Irish sounding surnames uh, or, you know, uh, Scottish or uh, English, depending. But uh, United Kingdom, 333 which is 52.77%, which is very odd and not what I was expecting at all. So um, to go down the list, 98 individuals had surnames that are identifiably German. That could possibly include uh, Austria, Switzerland, other German-speaking countries as well. 15.53% ethnically uh, histor historically, culturally, German surnames. Uh, 46 individuals had Irish surnames, which is 7.29%. Uh, Spain, 31, 4.91% had Spanish surnames. Now, I did break it down uh, further in the case of Spain. 
uh, with uh, Basque and Catalan, only a couple of cases for each of those. Um, but no way to tell national origin in this instance, right? Uh, for that matter, I mean, some of these people are supposedly English by re-migrated from Australia or Canada. Um, no, no way of really telling that either. Nonetheless, 4.91 um, have uh, Spanish surnames. I did break out Portugal. Yeah, there were four individuals with identifiably Portuguese surnames. Although, again, between Spain and Portugal, there, there's uh, quite a bit of overlap. Italian, Italy, 30 individuals, 4.75% had Italian surnames. France, 18 individuals, 2.85% had French surnames. Poland, 9 individuals, 1.42%. Greece, 6 individuals, 0.95%. Uh, European Jews, 5 individuals, 0.79%. Ukraine, 4 individuals, 0.63%. China, Four individuals, 0.63%. Czech, four individuals, 0.63%. And I, I could go down the list. I'll just go down. Portugal, four individuals, 0.63%. Uh, Arab, four individuals, 0.63%, etc. Down to uh, some, you know, I think 16 countries that had were represented by one individual each. You know, Macedonia, Albania, Hungary, Serbia, etc. and so forth. So what's, what's the point, right? The point is that this list is actually very different from what you get if you ask Americans about the national identity of their families. Now, these are not the same things, right? So this measure is, you know, should track onto that, but they're not the same things. Um, there's a problem with the reliability, particularly of self-reported data. Right. Nonetheless, if you ask people what nationality they belong to, oftentimes they will give you uh, the their, the ancestry information that comes from their surname. Right. So that if you've been here for 13 generations, you that might not even be, you know, like going to some DNA analysis or some uh, genealogical analysis that might not even be uh, correspond to like, you know, quote, who you are uh, at that point. Uh, nonetheless, that is oftentimes, I, I would guess, uh, what most people are going to say. So it's much easier, oddly enough, to get a definitive answer about the, the national and even subnational origin of a particular surname than it is to get good information from a given individual. Again, particularly if your, your family has been here for like 13 generations, um, you go back that far, it's something like 32,000 unique ancestors. And so, you know, neither data point actually captures the fact that many European Americans have been in this country for that long. And so almost none of them are any one thing. But the question as asked assumes that respondents will identify with one country of national origin. So I'll look at, again, that was my analysis uh, of, you know, actual surname origins. So I had to go manually look up surname origins uh, for over 600 individual dependents. Now I'll compare this to the American Community Survey, uh, which asks Americans to self-identify 
with different ancestry groups. And as I do this, you'll note that the categories don't map on to one another exactly. So um, I was only tell, for example, surname origins. Well, most of the you know, Hispanic surnames that you're going to encounter from the New World are, in fact, Spanish surnames. I have no way of telling whether or not uh, the individuals uh, concerned migrated their, or their ancestors uh, immigrated directly from Spain uh, for, or from elsewhere in the New World. Um, so that's one category. Also, uh, Black or African-American surnames, uh, generally speaking, are not African surnames. So um, they are, of course, you know, what Malcolm X would have called slave names, right? So uh, in, in that case, um, you know, it's not that much of a problem because this is a cloud, a, a crowd, a mob that is 85% uh, uh, non-Hispanic white folks. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's kind of interesting to compare what I found of the, you know, the surnames of these defendants with the surnames as a whole and of Americans as a whole in the uh, American Community Survey, as you'll see in a moment. So according to the American Community Survey, the, the modal category, uh, the largest category uh, for people self-identifying their national origin of their families is German. 14.7% of Americans self-identify as being of German ancestry. 12.4% identify as being a black or African-American ancestry. 10.9% identify as being of Mexican ancestry. And again, in surnames, I have no way of telling those folks uh, apart from uh, any of the other various Spanish-speaking countries. 10.6% of people self-identify as having Irish ancestry. Only 7.8% self-identify as having English ancestry. And 7.2% self-identify as having American ancestry. They just call themselves Americans, which in a sense may be the most accurate uh, response for many of the respondents, nonetheless. 5.5% self-identify as having Italian ancestry. 3.3% self-identify as having French ancestry. 3% self-identify as having Polish ancestry. 1.7% self-identify as having Scots ancestry, 1.6% self-identify as Puerto Rican ancestry, 1.4% self-identify as Norwegian ancestry, 1.4% self-identify as Dutch ancestry, 1.2% self-identify as Swedish ancestry, 1.2% self-identify as Chinese, 1% identify as Indian, i.e. subcontinental India, 1% self-identify as Scots-Irish, whatever that is, uh, it's a historically interesting term, and 0.9% identify as Russian. So there's a sense in which it's very different, but also very similar to my list. Now, if you lump the American category in with the uh, English, Scots, and Scots-Irish, that's only 17.7%. So what does that mean? Um... In my sample, my sample, in the universe of defendants, uh, the entire population of the folks arrested so far, 52.77% are have surnames that go directly back to the United Kingdom. In the American population as a whole, if you ask people, 
only 17.7% identify as either English or, quote, American. And uh, there's a problem with English ancestry. It somehow becomes a default category. And so many people who may have English surnames uh, simply identify themselves as American. So even if this self-report of 17.7% is based on a massive undercount of persons of United Kingdom ancestry, it's very different from these defendants, for of whom, you know, again, 52.77% have surnames that are identifiably um, British, right? So, um, how do I know that this is real? Well, the other numbers, all the other numbers, that is the one outlier. That is one thing that is actually quite different in uh, the American Community Survey data from the data that I got from the the surnames of uh, the defendants. So what does that mean? Well, uh, the ordinal ranking is the same, right? So if you go down the list, with the exception of the information about uh, people who have surnames that are British, um, everything else lines up. So uh, I'll, I'll do the comparison right here. So... United Kingdom, according to the ACS survey, 7.8%. According to my data, 52.77%. And again, my sample is, you know, of Trumpist insurrectionists who've been arrested and charged. German, ACS data, 14.7%. Surname data, 15.53%. So, very similar, right? There's roughly the same number of people of identifiably German surnames, versus people who, in a national survey, identify themselves as ethnically German. Ireland, ACS survey, 10.6%. My data, 7.29%. So a little bit lower, perhaps not statistically significant. I didn't run the numbers. Um, Mexican, and again, don't have data. 10.9% of people uh, across the U.S. in the ACS survey self-identify as being of Mexican national origin, and among Trumpist insurrectionists, uh, 4.91% have identifiably Spanish surnames. So um, people who have Spanish surnames were much less likely to be arrested, uh, as one might expect of a crowd that is, again, 85% non-Hispanic white. Italy, 5.5% in the ACS survey data among uh, Trumpist defendants, 4.75%. Again, very close. France, ACS survey data, 3.3%. Self-identify as French. Uh, In my sample of surnames, 2.85%. And finally, Poland, uh, in the ACS survey, 3%. In my surname data, 1.42%. So again, the ordinal ranking is the same, with the exception of one case. The British case. This crowd was unusually British. In terms of where their surnames come from, these are people who have surnames that are identifiable with the British Isles, particularly England, Scotland, Wales, um, excluding Ireland for various historic reasons. I just put that in a different category. Now, again, obviously there's some problems. The number of African surnames in the population is very different from the number of people who self-identify as black. Um, but 
you know, it's a crowd that is 85% non-Hispanic white. And so all the other numbers track rather nicely. So uh, the ranking is all the same. The exception is that the United Kingdom surnames are number one on the list of surnames of defendants in this case. So that's a lot of words to say that I do not think that this is down to a coding issue or different definitions of categories. Some of the definition problems could be due to a undercount of people self-identifying as English in the population, but these people are simply probably lumping themselves into the, quote, American category anyway. And of course, there's the question of why does this matter anyway, right? Why would we be interested in the sort of familial slash cultural identification of these various uh, defendants? Well, some of this could be due to the variation in the geographic distribution of surnames in the population, um, which is a big part of the reason why I thought of the literature on political culture in political science in this connection. The idea of what political culture is, is well established in political science. And it's first developed by the late political scientists, Gabriel Almond and Sidney Verba. Almond and Verba were comparativists. That is to say, people who study the politics of different countries in a comparative fashion. And the original development of this idea of political culture was done in their landmark 1963 book, The Civic Culture, Political Attitudes and Democracy. Now, their work has been criticized, but, you know, this basic intuition that culture is important to democratic development is an idea that's continued, both in comparative political science and in the study of American politics. So, in comparative politics, if you're interested in political culture, you should also look to the research of another giant of political science, uh, Ronald Engelhart, who passed away in May of last year. And he spent decades developing and testing his theory of what he called post-material values, and in the process created one of the most important measures in comparative politics, the World Value Survey, a project that is still very much ongoing and relevant to all kinds of research in comparative politics. But we're not talking about comparative here, we're talking about the study of American politics. So once Almond and Verba developed this idea of political culture, uh, other authors take this theory, uh, again, not so much post-materialism, but the idea of political culture itself, and uh, applies it, apply it to the American case. Um, well, the first to do this is Daniel Elazar. Uh, Elazar developed a theory of political culture, uh, or rather political subcultures, that relied on a historical analysis of waves of immigrations and the cultural immigrations uh, underpinnings, rather, of life in colonial America and the early republic. And he described three basic subcultures that he saw as competing political visions for the American experiment. Out of Elazar's work, any number of other authors have also developed their theories of political subcultures. Uh, for example, you could look at journalist Colin Woodard's 2011 book, American Nations, as a good example of this. 
or the 1989 book Albion's Seed by the historian David Hackett Fisher, who ranks the uh, tracks the exodus of people from the United Kingdom to North America in the colonial era, and then uh, looks at the development of what he calls the folkways of different groups. He identifies four of them. Talk about that in a little bit. So that's a very quick and vulgar, dirty lit review. Uh, if you want to do further reading in the theories of political culture, uh, the, the authors I just cited uh, will give you a, a little bit of a, a headway uh, toward doing that. But what's important here is that uh, political science has an idea that culture matters for politics and different cultures and political subcultures have different sets of ideas and these sets of ideas are related to their political behavior, right? And in this instance, political violence is a kind of political behavior. So you have people operating within the context of culture and culture is important for sustaining and promoting the operation of any political system, including electoral democracy. And if you have a breakdown in that, uh, there are consequences. So in a lot of the literature on political subcultures in America, there's a definite bad guy, Southerners. So Southern people in the United States have a distinctively aristocratic political culture, oftentimes racist, and they're seen in the literature as anti-democratic, uh, you can see that, you know, I mean, just looking at the, the draft of the Constitutional Convention, every, almost every anti-democratic uh, element of our Constitution uh, comes from, you know, people like Charles Pinckney, right? So uh, racism and the historical economic reliance on the brutal horror of slavery uh, pretty much, you know, sets this as, as a culture apart. Elazar, in his work, called this subculture the traditionalistic subculture and claimed those based on systems of dominance, uh, particularly racial dominance, and was less egalitarian than the other two systems he identified, and particularly less egalitarian than what he called the moralistic subculture uh, that was the culture that you know, basically births the abolitionist movement. In Colin Woodard's system, uh, the South itself is basically comprised of two regional subcultures, the Tidewater and the Deep South, both of which are conservative and anti-democratic. In Albion Seed, Fisher describes a movement of aristocrats from the South of England, mainly from um, cavalier royalist families, uh, who are uh, coming to, at that point, the colonies in the aftermath of the English Civil War to Virginia and the rest of the North American South, where they establish a plantation system based on uh, the Barbadian model. So there are other authors uh, who also develop similar typologies of American political cultures, of American political subcultures, but you get the idea. Now, by and large, these cultural and historical genealogies are all, with the exception of Woodard's system, really just different classifications of people of British descent. 
um, to the extent that later waves of immigrants come to the United States, they are assumed to have assimilated into the dominant culture or subculture of the region, which is set in amber by early immigrants from the United Kingdom from the 1650s onward. And that's, that's why I thought of political culture and the literature on political culture in this context. The preponderance of surnames from the British Islands uh, is absolutely striking. But at the same time, it doesn't really match up with the geographic distribution we might expect from these cultural theories, which are also highly dependent on geography. Uh, let's turn for a work to Fisher's work, Albion Seed, which seems particularly relevant in this context. In these Trumpist defendants, we have a group that is disproportionately, if their surnames are to be trusted, of British descent. And Fisher's book is all about four competing legacies of early immigrants from the United Kingdom to North America. And yet the problem with this is that Fisher's take-home message is that ultimately American pluralism owes its formation and continuation to the compromise created by the coexistence of these different strains of American culture, what he calls freedom ways. To quote from his conclusion, quote, New England's Puritan faith and ordered freedom grew far beyond its original limits to become, in Perry Miller's words, a constellation of ideas basic to any comprehension of the American mind. Virginia's cavalier conceit of hegemonic freedom transcended its association with inequalities of rank and race and gender to become an ethical idea that is relevant to all. Pennsylvania's Quaker inspiration of reciprocal freedom developed from a fragile sectarian vision into a libertarian creed remarkable for toughness of mind and tenacity of purpose. Border and black backcountry notions of natural freedom evolved from a folk tradition into an elaborate ideology. End quote. So ultimately, Fisher offers a regional and historical cultural explanation that becomes a kind of a synthesis. Now, I read this book in toto uh, in 30 years, but returning to it, I'm far less impressed than I had been when I was young. Uh, I think in retrospect, what we see in Trumpism is actually a breakdown of this pluralistic libertarian synthesis that Fisher writes about. And this is a synthesis that, in fact, may have always been more apparent than real. What if the cavalier conceit of hegemonic freedom never actually become, became universalized in quite the way that Fisher asserts that it did? What I would suggest is that the, Trump, the phenomenon of Trumpism uh, shows this, this distinctive bad guy character has broken down. No matter which one you want to look at, whether it be descendants of people who came to North America from the border marches, or East Anglia, or Kent, wherever it is, it doesn't really matter anymore, right? This breakdown of these uh, competing four subcultures uh, has become nationalized. Um, so what could possibly lead to that? Um, one thing, thing that could be that, of course, is the internet, right? So whatever the value of these different regional subcultures in explaining contemporary political behavior, 
it's hard to see how the voice of your ancestors whispering in your ear, remember that we all stand equal before God, is ever as loud as Alex Jones ranting about gay frogs. It seems as though the internet, especially the alt-right parts of the internet, combined with talk radio and cable television, are probably more important today in explaining Trumpism than these cultural theories, which, you know, however appealing they, they may be, right? And as someone who says political theory, of course, the idea that ideas matter, that political philosophy or political culture matters, seems appealing to me. But the, the differences between these groups doesn't uh, really explain the fact that these people came from all over the country. And for some reason, uh, you know, I'm just left with this odd factoid that over half of them appear to have uh, British surnames, right? So, you know, what does that mean? Um, to my mind, it means that the divisions between Cavaliers and Quakers have been superseded, the descendants of the Cavaliers and Quakers, rather, uh, by this idea of whiteness and a particular kind of whiteness, old stock Anglo-Saxon American whiteness of whatever regional subculture you might want to consider. The Trumpist movement has combined this seemingly disparate elements. It doesn't mean, that, of course, that for some people, um, what Fisher called this uh, universal hegemonic vision of freedom uh, become, you know, becomes universal. Perhaps that's true. But perhaps for other people, that's not true, right? Perhaps, uh, you know, for them, you know, it really does count come down to a theory of ethnic cultural, and racial dominance. So it's mirrored a bit in these theories of political culture, uh, some of which, by the way, has, have little to say about the experience of people of color, right? Um, I'll exclude Woodard from this because his work actually does try to address more substantively than the other writers I've mentioned uh, these themes about the experience of uh, black and brown uh, people, people of color in America. Nonetheless, by definition, the theories of political culture are interested in majority culture in specific geographic regions, and they have much less to say about minority cultures in those regions. And I think that we're living in an age where we're seeing a dramatic break with the past rather than continuity. Um, I really wish that this kind of pluralistic agreement between subcultures that's depicted in Albion Seed really was a defining character of our age, but it's not. Uh, and if anything, what this literature can offer us today is to make more stark this breakdown of this old pluralistic consensus. Uh, in fact, you know what? We might have called it, well, in a British context, actually, the, the post-war liberal consensus, although that certainly applies to the U.S. as well. And the pluralism itself was always conditional and was always based on unspoken but sometimes explicit racial and economic hegemony, i.e. white hegemony. And so I come full circle, right? I go turn to these old theories of political culture and I wind wind up right back at the, the obvious thing 
that this is an 85% non-Hispanic white crowd. It just so happens that these people tend to, for some reason, have surnames that come identifiably from the United Kingdom. So this is a tentative little empirical project, and it does little other than demonstrate the peculiarly British character of white hegemony as it operates in the United States. But beyond that, I, I can't really say a lot more. Changing demographic realities, theoretical and political challenges to hegemonic whiteness, Trumpism itself constitutes a reaction to that. Now, I spent a lot of time looking at where these ancestors came from and just wound up right back at the top line, 85% white, 86% male, 17% with military experience. It transcends geographic boundaries. Uh, these are basically just the hired thugs, the ideological extremists, and the reactionary foot soldiers of a decaying social, economic, and political order. These people came all across the country to commit crimes against democracy in the District of Columbia on January 6th. And while they may have claimed that it was 1776, in reality, it was 1860. So, thank you so much for listening again this week. Um, please, if you could, recommend it to your friends. Follow the show on Twitter at CapInsurrep. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, uh, particularly if you are on Apple, uh, do rate the show. Thank you so much, and I hope to uh, be talking to you again soon.